when you looked at your relationships with people and you'd classify them, you'd think posturing for personal gain, performances, hidden agendas, duplicity. And okay, now I got this pet, unconditional love, limitless affection to die for loyalty, make me laugh every day. What would I choose? <laughs> From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Marty Becker. Also known to the public as America's veterinarian, Marty is a genuine titan of veterinary medicine with an incredibly successful career spanning not just the decades, but also the categories. He was born and raised in potato country on a small family farm in southern Idaho, where his family had dairy and beef cattle, horses, sheep, pigs, chickens, and of course, dogs and cats. Back then, the cats were mostly feral and lived in the shadows of the haystacks, and the dogs were outdoor only. Becker went to veterinary school to become a dairy practitioner, but after listening to Dean Leo Bustad's introductory talk about the human-animal bond, he switched his attention to companion animals on the spot. Today, our pets occupy more of our beds than we do, which is part of the reason he founded the juggernaut fear-free practice movement, which aims to prevent and alleviate fear, anxiety, and stress in pets by inspiring and educating the people who care for them. Over his career, Marty has owned multiple practices and built a national media profile through his regular TV appearances, national newspaper column, and book publishing deals. To date, he's written 23 books that have sold almost 8 million copies, including three New York Times bestsellers. He's an adjunct professor at his alma mater, the Washington State University College of Veterinary Medicine, and also at the Colleges of Veterinary Medicine in both Colorado State and University of Missouri. Additionally, he has lectured at every vet school in the United States and is on the advisory board of World Vets. Now, before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Thrive Community. If you're struggling with managing time, imposter syndrome or burnout, you need to make a change. The good news, you're not broken or a bad fit for the profession. You're simply missing some important skills no one teaches at university. Skills you'll learn as part of the Vetex Thrive community. Thrive is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. I have wanted to sit with Marty and ask questions since long before podcasts were a twinkle in Ben Hammersley's eye. Safe to say he did not disappoint. This episode is going to blow your mind. By the end of this show, you'll know Dr. Marty Becker like never before. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with perhaps the greatest cheerleader our profession has ever had. So Dr. Marty Becker, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you on. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, buddy. It is awesome. And uh, so first of all, thank you for taking time out your super busy schedule. I wanted to kind of kick off our interview with, you wouldn't remember this, but it's indelibly burned in my brain. And it was the first time, I don't, we didn't really meet, but it was the first time I actually met you in person. It was CVC 2011. It was the day after the Cinco de Mayo Festival. And I had finished up my talks, the first time ever speaking in the US, I'd finished up my talks and it was safe to say I was on something of a high after finishing the talks and not getting booed off stage. And I'd gone out and had made tons of friends coming to the talks and in the conference and a whole bunch of us had gone out to a wonderful Mexican restaurant in the National Harbor 
And that's about the last thing I remember. So the next day, I'm, I wake up early because I'm all jet lagged still, and I have quite a sore head. And I go on like, I need to go to a lecture and get some CE. And it's super early in the morning. And there is one lecture on and there's one person. I'm like, oh, it's Marty Becker. I have to go see Marty Becker. So I come in late. I think I smell awfully, awfully bad of tequila and sat at the back. That was my first uh, experience watching you talk. And But I remember so clearly you talking about, and the, the thing that stuck out to me more, and it, it really influenced me in that moment, was you know, he's talking about the amazing technologies and the things you can do to improve the experience of animals as they move through your clinic. And you spoke about laser therapy and this amazing thing called laser. And I just, I just thought, I love being in America. I just, and I was, I was working in living in Australia at the time. And I thought, man, there's so much value I can take back there. So I went out and bought a practice pretty soon, got a laser. So it was a massive influence from my career, that, that one incredibly hungover moment. So there you go. That, how's that for recognition? You know what? I remember you. If this is the same time, Andy Rourke and you used to do quite a bit of stuff together. But I remember you'd connect with people really well. I think you're the epitome of edutainment. And so you really moved that that group. And they were following you like little <laughs> puppies, you know. But a, a really happy pack of puppies. It's probably <laughs> the same group that went out to Cinco de Mayo, right? And went in there. Yeah, I remember class two lasers, how you could use, they had a had a patent on it. So they could project a laser in a line rather than a point. And you could actually stand above the pet and put these two tracks, like a, a double lane road, right down the back of the pet and calm it. I remember that very well. It was magic. My mind was open. It opened up so many things. And I, I went and tried the laser out in the exhibit hall. And uh, yeah, it was just great. It was just a brilliant experience to sort of be be part of that. So, Marty, you know, you've been quite an inspiration to me through my whole career, and I think that's safe to say there will be an awful lot of people would say the same thing. I'm curious just to go back in your timeline and and start with, like, how for you, what was the the journey that that took you into veterinary medicine? Well, I was born and raised on a small farm and ranch in southern Idaho, and. It's really amazing. Talk about a trademark. I've been in 89 countries and, and all seven continents. And I swear to gosh, you tell people, where are you from? I'm from Idaho. Oh, Idaho potatoes. It's almost a, a knee-jerk thing. And that's where I grew up, down in potato country. We had a small farm and ranch, 160 acres, which is a quarter of a square mile. And we really broke the back of that that small farm ranch to put four kids through college. So we were, we were farm kids. We had dairy cows, beef cows, chickens, pigs, horses. Uh, it was almost like the ark unloaded there literally. But at the time, the, the cats were living in the periphery of the haystacks, you know, shadows. You'd see every once in a while, the big old Tom with a neck that's about a foot thick from all the fights he'd got into <laughs> and then uh, you'd have a lot of cats, and then Pan Lucapini would come through. I didn't know what it was at the time, and wipe them out. We'd have very few cats. And the dogs had a utilitarian role. They hunted. I was a hunter at the time, so they retrieved your ducks. They guarded your place. They herded cattle. And I still remember, there's two things that I remember back being six or seven years old that got me into veterinary medicine. One was... Luke the Labrador Retriever was living outside in a calving shed 
with a, a burlap potato sack for a flap. And in the summertime, he'd dig down so he's below the surface of the ground. And he was maybe two feet <laughs> in a hole. It was cool. In the wintertime, dad would kick like three bales of straw in there, and that's where he stayed. And there was a, a big snowstorm, and it was in... It was 1963, the year the Beatles invaded America, and there was this wind, this violent storm with the snow blowing horizontally, 60, 70 miles an hour winds. And I asked Dad, can we bring Luke in the house? I was six years old. He's like, no, they're made for this weather. You know, he explained to me about Canada, and they're made for this. And well, he resisted. I persisted. And he said, all right, tonight only, on the porch. And uh, when it stopped snowing, you got to take him outside. So Luke came in and got on the linoleum, which is vinyl flooring for a more modern crowd. And it was like he was on ice skates. He just fell to the ground. He never felt something that slippery. And the infantry crawled to the opening into the house. And it was opened into the kitchen. And he looked left and he looked right. And I still remember him. He was like, shit, this is nice. You know, I've been living in a crappy old calving shed. You guys are in here. And he came in timidly and he leaned against my dad. And then all of a sudden he took off and got the crazy runs. He's flying around the house and he landed. He ended up flying up on the couch and his old tail was beaten like a pentameter on the side of the couch. And, and really the crazy thing is that he became an indoor outdoor dog then. He's most of the time was outside, but at night he started staying with us. And, and that migration happened across uh, America, this migration of biblical proportions from, in our case, the barnyard to the backyard to the, to the bedroom. And for people that didn't grow up rural from outside to inside to underneath, you know, there was no more Sunday dad projects building a doghouse. So that's what it was when that bond got life breathed into it. When I got to see him not in a a utilitarian role, but an emotional role. Hell, he was a laughter catalyst. He was a, you know, we had a piss poor coal furnace and it was always cold, but you could snuggle up to that lab. You know, I didn't know at the time, you know, he's two, three degrees hotter than I am and get warmed up. So that was the spark right there that ignited that, that wildfire of purpose, passion and plan that, my God, I want to take care of animals. Was that driven by, I mean, that's, that's the ultimate pester power right there. But where did this migration start? Was it in cities or was it in rural places? Or, you know, is there is there a thing that sort of triggered that? I was thinking, you know, with like, it was industrial revolution that, that kind of changed veterinary medicine from the sort of a, a more agrarian focus to, you know, by necessity moved it away from horses toward more cattle. And then it's this sort of move, this migration from, utilitarian to emotional, you know, family member that, that then changed veterinary medicine again. So where did that, act? Is, is there a germinal seed there? Was it in the minds of collectively millions of children across the world or? You know what? I've wondered that. I've never seen it actually studied like, you know, anthropologists or somebody looking at it. What I suppose happened was you started seeing politicians showing off pets that were living in the White House and things. And so it wasn't lost on politicians, except for one who we won't mention, <laughs> that you have a dog humanizes people and people attach positive social attributes to 
pet ownership. So you yep. started seeing dogs in the White House and increasingly in the, you know, the women's magazines, they call them the seven sisters, the seven most popular women's magazines. You started seeing pictures of celebrities posted with their pets that were living in their house. And I also think you started seeing some pets on TV, the very earliest things of seeing pets on TV. And even in cartoons like uh, the Jetsons and stuff, these dogs were not outside, they were inside. But once somebody, you know, I remember in our place when Luke was in the house, then some of my friends came over and boy, they wanted their, when they got new dogs and they were in the house as well. But I'm not sure it spread probably about the same time in Europe probably in parts of Europe anyway. I wonder if Lassie had much to do with that. You sort of look at what the popular breeds at the time were and, and yes. what drove that. It's fascinating to me. If So I said we'd probably dive off down some weird tangents and one popped in my head there. But if horses were replaced by tractors and that drove what veterinarians were going to be doing dramatically, and this is in sort of you know almost pre-Heriot days, moving into Heriot days, then cattle were, were the big deal with a little bit of small animals on the side. And now it's a societal change again that's driven the importance of pets. It feels a lot like we're at a very pivotal moment. And, and perhaps we might even be past that moment that we've, you know, is Harriet done? And now we're moving into this age of information and technology where, you know, COVID has happened and we've seen just this incredible incredible explosion in the not just the popularity it's the wrong word it's the it's the connection it's the need it's the social crutch almost the pillar that is holding us up i'm going to tell you something as a as a fellow veterinary medical communicator in just i'm going to tease it i'm going to tell you something in a minute that you're going to go oh my god because i know i went when i heard this i went oh god this is going to be juicy what i think happened too coming back to that previous question when you looked at your relationships with people and you'd classify them, you'd think posturing for personal gain, performances, hidden agendas, duplicity. And okay, now I got this pet, unconditional love, limitless affection to die for loyalty, make me laugh every day. What would I choose? <laughs> so it's sad, but you know, I come from a, an era as a child growing up in rural southern Idaho where people on Friday and Saturday night went to visit people. That's what you did. Hey, let's go over and visit the Dolans or the Seftons or the McLeans, or they'd come to your house. There was tons of picnics with all these families getting together. There was a party light in our thing where there's five families on one phone line, for gosh sakes. But they were much more about coming out of the wars, much more social. Mm -hmm. You know, the Veterans of Forest War, the American Legion, you know, all these different service groups that the people continued to serve. And then those and bridge clubs, and I mean, pinochle clubs, and the gun club. I can remember all these different things, and they all petered away. But when you look at these pets, you know, once you had intimacy, and, I, and one of the books I wrote is The Healing Power of Pets. That's the key to the healing power of pets or the human-animal health connection is intimacy, close physical contact. That That's when the magic came. All right, so here it is, Dave. I am in COVID, and I happen to know the past president of the Mayo Clinic. He's the most prodigious fundraiser in Mayo history. Why would he be that? Because he headed oncology. So just think of the people that go to the Mayo Clinic with cancer, right? And, oh, they passed on, and then they're going to do stuff. 
He's also boarded in internal medicine, hospice, and palliative care, quadruple boarded at the mothership, a male. So <laughs> wow. I call him up and I said, hey, Ed, his name is Ed Cregan. And he's, he wrote a number one New York Times bestseller called How Not to Become My Patient, by the way. Hey, I want the inside scoop on how to protect my family from COVID. And I thought he'd say, forget hydroxyquinolone, you know, but mega doses of vitamin D or do, you know, something, you know. And he goes, Marty, I was just on the phone, a collective call today with some of the top medical centers, and we were trying to get the administration to deploy pets to fight COVID. No way. Uh, I said, what? Say that again. You know, you know how you, you, you and I are both like, what did you just say? Tell me more. And he said, Marty, do you remember when you interviewed me for the Healing Power of Pets? Because Ed had written over 500 prescriptions for a pet on a prescription pad at the Mayo Clinic. So it was like at the time, uh, Lipitor was the number one drug for cholesterol. So it was like Lab instead of Lipitor, Poodle instead of Prozac, you know. <laughs> and he goes, you're going to get COVID and you're going to survive because of your immune system, or you're going to get vaccinated and build immunity and survive because of your immune system. What is the enemy of the immune system is stress. cortisol, right? Fear, anxiety, and stress cause cortisol release. Cortisol weakens the immune response. So how are we going to reduce fear, anxiety, and stress? And he actually went, duh, because 75% <laughs> of Americans have pets. It's a medicine that tastes good. It's a medicine that goes down easy. It's a medicine that doesn't have any side effects. And he said, you can deploy it for the cost of one bacon strip. <laughs> and I thought, hell, you're right. Uh, but see, that never, that should have gone out. And But you know what? It really didn't need to go out because what we did once we were home, we activated that darn thing ourselves. And the people that had always wonder how can I, I remember a guy coming over one time to my house and he goes, that dog just used his tongue as toilet paper and you let it kiss you on the mouth. <laughs> and I said, hell yeah. I, and I'm not going to, would not you, you kiss me on the mouth or licking me would creep me out. But they finally saw what all this shit was about. Why would we let a pet kiss us on the mouth? Why would we, sit in a semi-paralytic state on the edge of the bed so that the, we didn't wake the dog up, who's only slept 18 of the last 24 <laughs> hours, right? So I think we found it ourselves that we somehow it came into that, that closeness, that intimacy that we needed at the right time when we didn't have intimacy and closeness with other family members and friends. Right. Netflix and puppy sales just went through the roof. Do you have any reliable, because I, I have asked a lot of people this question and the number seems to vary wildly in terms of like, what sort of size increase are we seeing? Because this, I think this is, and this leads into perhaps another bit of conversation. I don't want to jump away from the original thread too far. We'll never get anywhere back near it. But, you know, this feels like an incredibly positive moment for veterinary medicine at a time when I don't get the sense that we are prepared to meet it head on. I think it's the best of times and the worst of times. It's the mm. best, it's the best of the times because people can see the high tech, high touch. My sister's a physician. Physicians are high tech. They're not high touch. 
They're state of the art, no, they're not state of the heart. I challenge you to find any profession that's both heart and head, the high tech, high touch, state of the art meets state of the heart. So more people get to see that. And it makes, you know, practices are busy. We're able to raise wages up and things like that. The downside is 50% of Americans can't afford veterinary care. And a lot of these people that are millennials and Gen Z, and, you know, I hope this goes the right way. When I was first practicing, I've been practicing now for 41 years. And when I was first practicing, I remember the best clients as a category were gay individuals or gay couples because their pets were their kids. They would treat them like kids, do what you think is best, doc, you know, rather than a negotiation trying to figure out what they could afford and what we could do. Well, millennials and Gen Z are mimic that now, delaying children, delaying marriage, their pets are their kids. But many of them don't have a relationship with a veterinarian. And so they come in, especially during COVID with remote drop-off, they don't get to feel that empathy we have, that love. I mean, to get a dog's tail wagging or a cat purring or taking a treat when they're in a hospital, they don't get to see that. So they just get to see the bill and they weren't ever exposed to it before. And I don't think anybody in life, do you ever go on a service business, like getting your car fixed and think, oh God, I thought it'd be three times more than that. I mean, it's always a lot. And for some reason, people won't beat up on the dentist or the physician, but they'll beat up on the veterinarian who they think must just love animals and they should do all this stuff for free. So that's hard on the veterinary practice, but I, it's also untenable that we charge fees to where half of America can't afford care. And often those are the people that need these pets the most. So that's the flip side, I guess, Dave. It feels like the, the market is just going to fragment more into, you know, we've got practices being literally overwhelmed with clients right now and a generation of veterinarians that are just struggling. The numbers, the numbers scare me. I'm, I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on the future and whether you feel, you know, bullish or bearish to use the investor lingo, but, you know, positive or, or sort of negative. When you hear the stats from the AVMA of, you know, the shrinkage in the pet population, uh, the veterinary, you know, the active veterinary population, you see the you know we've data from across here the you know the level of people considering leaving the profession and this sort of other epidemic of burnout that is afflicting i don't think it's just afflicting the veterinary industry it's it's afflicting you know it seems to be pan economic and it seems to be more of a you know perhaps a generational issue but it gives me a lot of concern about how can you possibly go on in a situation you know it feels like we're in a very very tight spot where there's a massive wave of work and people less, I don't know, willing's the right word, because I think we all want to do great work. And you're right, we've got this empathy. But the capability to cope and to stick with it for long enough to become excellent and to really enjoy it. Do you still think this is a great career for people to have? And like, how do you see things playing out from here? Dave, you're an amazing interviewer. The way, And I am not have no need to blow smoke uh, up your wazoo, but it's amazing how you, I think your thing is called blunt dissection. And it's funny how you dissect these things out. I was just, you can't see me because my camera's not working, but I was finding myself just nodding. Yes, yes, yes. So listen to this. You want a scary statistic. We're down to 1.4 applicant for every opening in veterinary school in the United States. That is really scary. It was 16 to 1 when I was in school. Mm-hmm. And people still think, I hear it's harder to get in veterinary school than medical school. Uh, no, not, not anymore. 
And the veterinary schools will have you believe, well, they're just as qualified of applicants. I don't know, 1.4 applicant for every opening in veterinary school. And a lot of people, they have gone through life and they love animals and they're very good with the academic parts and the technical parts, but it's, it may not be the best fit socially for them because, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> dogs don't, and cats don't come in by themselves, right? They've got people attached to it and you got to be emotionally resilient. I've often wondered, you know, I've said, uh, I've been very open about my mental health struggles. We have a major problem, both my family and Teresa's, my wife's family, with um, manic depression and depression, bipolar. But when I was in vet school, we had a counselor. His name was Jack, Jack Daniels. <laughs> we, we, I was grew up in the 70s, and we smoked so much pot and uh, drank so much and partied and had the best time. And we didn't take it as seriously. Like... We all thought, hey, we're all going to graduate. We're all going to pass the boards. And now, and I used to teach at every veterinary school in the country, and now going back through Fear Free, everybody is so serious about th mm -hmm. these things. I think there's four things I want to do before I turn to dust. And one was look at the emotional well-being of animals. And that, with Fear Free, is got roots and shoots. That is unstoppable now. The second thing is to fight for relevance and share of mind for the veterinary profession, because we've seen an erosion of relevance and share of mind of baby boomers. And I don't think we ever went out and got it with millennials and Gen Z. We didn't earn it. So we need to earn it. Third thing is to increase the number of applicants to veterinary school in general and minorities specifically. And number four is access to care. If you're that kid, I often think, you know, James Harriet was why I went to veterinary school, that Luke the Labrador Retriever came inside, got all creatures great and small. And I came in to thought, oh my God. I mean, that whole thing just came alive with, oh gosh, I love it. Look how yellow those there, pages are. Yeah, yeah, that's an oldie, isn't it? That is that is the book that I read that brought me to veterinary medicine. You too. See, both mm -hmm. of us. God, that just made the hair stand. I love that when you get that feeling. Uh, not that feeling, Dave. This... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that hair just just for the record, that was a copy of James Harris' All Creatures Great and Small. Yes, and yeah, that clear. Be for the record, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been up in York and been to the practice, and I knew James Harriet by phone, and I know his son. I've met with his son several times, who's also a veterinarian. But then it was emergency vets, and yeah. then it was a, a bunch of people. Surprise! I didn't know this, but a bunch of people because of Temple Grandin. Became very good friends with her, Dave. If you ever want to interview her, really good friends. And so there's a whole bunch that, that get it. And I'm not sure now who they model, right? Well, here's the other bad thing we've done. I'm now taking a tangent here. When I wanted to be a veterinarian, the local veterinarian cheered me on all the way. I never mm -hmm. heard a negative comment ever. I graduated. Hell, I was exalted you know, welcome to the greatest profession on earth. You know, you're going to be financially successful and emotionally wealthy. And I have been, I was. And now people are like, oh God, I wouldn't, are you sure you want to be a veterinarian? You know, uh, I don't know if I were you, I'd go into dentistry school or pharmacy or something, you know, so veterinarians try to talk people out of it. People that have recently graduated, talk to their people are still in school and say, oh God, I don't know if I should have done it. I don't enjoy it. But then you see the others, you know, the those loudest voices, 
the people that brighten the room up just by walking out of it, the energy vampires tend to get all the attention when I know lots of others that are, that are just feel blessed. Right. So to answer it more, a little more succinctly, if you want to be financially successful and emotionally wealthy, you should consider a career in veterinary medicine. There's no other career that I know of where people, you get a more positive response from the public in general. Your moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles feel so proud saying that their son, their granddaughter, their niece is a veterinarian because they get positive uh, feedback. That bond is so sacred. And to celebrate, protect, and nurture that bond it's interesting. My sister, who's a physician, graduated number one in her class at Yale. She's a nephrologist, just working on kidneys. So many physicians focus on one organ. And God, is it interesting work where you've got multiple species, multiple disciplines. The public loves you. And the one thing that I think people think is they've got to take a vow of poverty to be a veterinarian. It is you can be financially successful. And in a lot of cases, wildly successful financially in veterinary medicine. Okay. So that's, I'm going to jump in there. I've, I've questioned. So being emotionally and financially successful, and let me play devil's advocate just for a second, because that describes a version of veterinary medicine that people almost don't, it doesn't seem like they recognize it. You know, you, we're playing this comparison game on social media. You're looking at your, the cohort of professional peers in, in the, the aligned allied professions, medicine, dentistry, legal, not really, uh, but you know they'll still be in your peer group. And the difference in wages that they seem to be able to generate certainly quite early on. And then just hearing you talk, now I agree 100%. Clients have fueled me through my career. I love clients, but the vast majority of people seem to get on Facebook and then this the role models are other angry people on Facebook. And there's this narrative out there that clients are the enemy. So what has to change for the individual, the individual listening to this, who's maybe struggling and doesn't see it the way you're seeing it right now, what advice would you give that person to change their perspective? And then the follow-up, because if I don't ask it now, I will forget it, is what advice does Marty Becker give for people to to build wealth emotionally and financial wealth in veterinary medicine. I guess we do have to remember our target audience here, don't we, Dave? <laughs> do you know what? When I talk about financial success and emotional wealth, let's talk about financial success first. So I've owned all or part of seven veterinary hospitals in my lifetime. I went a different route. I went to veterinary school to be a dairy practitioner. And that lasted 30 minutes. I became a companion animal practitioner and who would have known it end up with books and television and syndicated columns and all, all of that stuff. But if for just economically, if I could have graduated in 1980 or I could have graduated in 2021 to build a business, I would graduate in 2021. I have more economic opportunities. So corporate veterinary medicine, the aggregators, all together, they only own 20% of all the practices in the United States. So there's 80% of the practices that are left. And guess what? There's all these people out there, men and women, that they're looking to retire. And the corporate people don't want them. These people would hold the debt for you. They'll sell it to you on attractive terms. 
they don't want to see. It's almost like you watch Antiques Roadshow or American Pickers, and somebody just wants. I'm glad this is going to have a good home. You know that it's going to see the light again, and it's almost like that. I don't want to see this practice go down. I don't want to see it sold uh, sold corporately, even if there wasn't people pursuing them. So. If I were them, if I was graduating then, I would look to get in some place, get a partnership, buy the practice out, and then if build that into maybe buying two or three in the same area, and you will accumulate incredible, you multiply yourself with incredible, incredible wealth. The other thing that's going to change is telehealth, telemedicine is going to make it to where you can work whatever time you want in the clinic and like, almost like Uber uh, or uh, DoorDash or something where you can work as much as you want and make a lot of money just being at home on the phone. So the emotional wealth part, uh, Dave, you're a high profile veterinarian and I'm a high profile veterinarian. And one of the things you find out is not everybody cheers you on. And in fact, a lot of people love nothing more than tearing you down. And so you've got to develop some resiliency to not let that crazy Yelp review devastate you. And there's things you can do there. Like what I have done for my whole career is kept files of people that sent me letters when their pets passed on, because that's one of the times when they really pour their heart out to you and and thank you for things. And you, you remind yourself of what has happened and all these things and that, you know, it's, it's kind of like Stephen Covey's in Seven Habits of Hi- Highly Effective People. You're building your own emotional bank account up to have resiliency. And what I do, too, I do two things proactively. One, I'll be in the exam room with somebody that's miserable. I still practice. And I'll be in the exam room with somebody that's just miserable. And I'm thinking to myself through a smile, I'd like to punch you right in the throat. You know, I love one of that shit like in the military where you just hit them and they just drop to the ground and their head bounces off the floor. I do. I think I would love to just torture you, but I'm smiling, you know, and, and then the other thing I do, when you have that client, that, that client that comes in, you've never met before, and they are delightful. You can tell they have this loving relationship with their pet. You can tell that bond is so strong and they, they trust you, that they, they appreciate you and they trust you. And when they get ready to leave, I'll tell people this. I'll say, Miss, I'll just say, make up make up a name here. Mrs. Mason, if you weren't just satisfied but delighted with the service you got here, we'd love it if you would refer somebody else to us that's just like you. And what you're doing, they're thinking, whoa, like me? You guys really liked me? So you're recognizing them, and they tend to have friends that are like them. And so you'll get, because a lot of times people think you're too busy, especially like now you wouldn't possibly want any clients. Well, we want more clients like you. So if you weren't just satisfied, but delighted, would you refer people? And I also tell them also, would you post something on social media? I actually ask for it. And Dave, I do something that people groan every time I say this at a conference they're like, oh God, not me. Or, uh, you know, I just see people, some, some of them steam coming out their ears. I write by that kind of client. I write, I very often write my mobile phone number on my business card. It's not printed on there. And I say, hey, if you have any problems tonight, you call me. Here's my mobile phone number. I will tell you one out of a hundred call. 
it's almost never. And when they do call, they should have called. And I don't mind it. But it's amazing how when I first started doing it, I thought it's a little risky. I, I heard it from somebody. I, it wasn't like my original idea, but I was t- scared too, right? Right. Because you, you kind of want that that uh, hedge of protection, that privacy. Nobody can reach you. But that is one hell of a practice builder. That and asking the genesis of a pet's name at the front end of the first time you meet them. Everybody has a, a story that goes with the name. Because it's in a story, it helps you remember it. And these people just like, oh, my God, you really, you want to hear the story, right? There's only one greatest dog in the world, and I happen to have her. And you want to know the <laughs> genesis of her name? You can hear my voice rising with enthusiasm. I still, I literally, I, I live in a three-story log home. I take the stairs two at a time at 67 years old every day because I'm so excited to see what's going on. I love veterinary medicine. So I want to ask about that energy, Marty, because you have got, like, talk about the 80-20 rule. I think this is like the 95-5 or possibly more skewed, but but your any one bit of your resume could be, a career in itself you know you have the veterinary career the practice owner career the media career the book writing career uh fear free there's just there's so many you know waves that you have caught and not just caught but actually in many cases created <laughs> the whole energy which is which actually means you're a storm somewhere at sea as well as a surfer which is kind of uh, a lot one of our previous conversations, you know, you were you were talking and and you said, you know, your your family had to stage an almost pseudo intervention to sort of try and slow you down a little bit <laughs> with things building up. Where does that energy, work ethic, where does that come from, and how the heck have you sustained that for a whole career? Amphetamines. <laughs> 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 Shit, I didn't think I would hear on the podcast. <laughs> oh, is that hiding in plain sight thing? Yeah, that's how those that's how those German soldiers remember. That's how they yep. marched for four days, right? No, no, it's funny. My family has a history of mental illness, so manic depression, mm. bipolar. So maybe I've got that mania. No, my mother was graduated from college and she was 16. She had this incredible high energy, just blessed with it. And I've always felt like God or mother nature's played favorites with me, you know? And I, I had a, my mom and dad were farmers and ranchers, but they were like entrepreneurs and overalls, you know, dad, I always wanted to make money and dad provided stuff, selling scrap metal, putting together potato sacks and selling them, picking up, by the time they used to uh, refill pop bottles, picking up pop bottles and then selling uh, eggs at the grocery store. And then it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they never poo-pooed anything. So when I went to undergraduate school, my um, sophomore year of undergraduate, I was wrote a business, I was in a business class and there were more 7-Elevens than any other business location in the country. And, uh, I thought, what? why are they so popular? Convenient hours, convenient location, convenience of one-stop shopping. And I thought, hmm, why couldn't you run a veterinary practice like that? So that's how it ended up starting out these all-pet complexes, all based on convenience. And then, you know, this um, it's really funny how this worked, how there's that old saying, uh, I'm not sure who said it, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. But I went to veterinary school to be a dairy practitioner, 
the dean gave up, Leo Bustad, the co-founder of the Delta Society, gave a talk on the human-animal bond. And I became a companion animal practitioner because of his talk on the bond. He also asked for volunteers for the People Pet Partnership. So I volunteered. And I always sat in the back of the room, Dave. I don't know where you sat in school. I was always, yeah, back row bombers, you know. I'll tell you one thing. When I've hired people over the year, I say, tell me the people in the last two rows. That's who I want to hire. They've never asked a question in their life and know how to tell a good joke. So I got privy and partnered to the Human Animal Bond. And then the Chicken Soup for the Soul books come out. And then it's a long story how this happened. But they end up calling me. This is before the internet because veterinarians had said, oh, Marty Becker talks about the human animal bond. You should talk to him. So they called me up. We did a phone handshake, wrote Chicken Soup for the Pet Lover's Soul. And then that got me an appearance on Good Morning America. And I didn't do so poorly that I I didn't get asked back. So you I was on there didn't, for seven. didn't bust out any amphetamine jokes right there. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was funny. I look back at that first thing, though. I was so terrified that. Well, I was holding a vaccine, or, or no, it was Advantage, because we were going to show, Advantage was the first topical flea product, and I was going to show how to do it, and my hands were shaking. I couldn't hardly pop the top off. I was so terrified, you know, there with all these big studio. But then that led to Good Morning America. That led to a syndicated column. That led to more books. And then, uh, and you know, Fear Free comes about kind of unexpectedly. But But for me, it comes back to that, the same inexhaustible, irrefutable source of energy that fuels veterinary medicine fuels me, and that's the human-animal bond, that affection connection, which, you know, to describe it, Dave, I don't know how you would describe it. I always think it's like love. It's nebulous, but easily understood by anybody that's felt it. And I think we could have a thousand pet parents simultaneously take a lie detector test. Do you, in fact, have the world's greatest pet (laughs) and we would all pass it if we said do you in fact have the world's greatest granddaughter or son not all 1000 would pass it right i would pass that one i would pass pass that that one one. i do have the world's greatest door dave you don't do 23 and me do you i don't what is that Am I showing ignorance there? That's that genetics test, you know, where you do like ancestry.com. Oh, right, got it. Yes, I've heard of this. Yeah, with, your, with you in college, you don't want to do it, Dave. <laughs> you don't want to do it. Well, will it be uncomfortable? It could be. It could be that knock on the door. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Advice noted. <laughs> that, that was obtuse. That's why I don't take it either. So... <laughs> So I want to pull back. You're very good at throwing me miles off of questions as well, which is that takes some, actually it doesn't take any doing, but it's a good one. Mentors. You mentioned a name there and, and maybe there's a question in about the sort of, you know, exposing yourself to that surface area, you know, exposing your, your career to luck and maximizing that. I'm kind of keen. There's, there's a couple of things I think you know, you're just wonderful with words, the turn of phrase, there's an artistry, I'm sure you've worked on those, you know, the state of the art, state of the heart, that doesn't just pop out of a brain right away, right? Or does it? It, you know, it feels like that's that there's nothing wasted in there. And I hear that when I've listened to you over the years, I hear that again and again, like the the power of words and the the power of, of connection. I'm curious where you develop that side, because obviously with us, 
being scientists, we're not always that good on that side of things. Was that something that was innately in you, this sort of ability to communicate? Or is it something you learned? And, and if it is, how, how did you go about learning it? You know, I got to, first of all, I just realized since I, I'm brevity challenged, uh, Dave, I'm sorry. I didn't even really answer your, I want to go back and answer one little piece of your last question. I didn't see my daughter. Mikel is 36 years old now. I never saw her first year of life. I was still farming, which most people like Marty Becker was a farmer. Yes, I was actually farming and practicing as a veterinarian. And I, w- I went out to, it was in the place where you irrigate. And I had to go out in the morning and irrigate before I practiced. Mikel wasn't up. And I'd come home at night. I'd practice, then go irrigate, take care of the farm. And she was asleep. And so I, I read a book that changed my life. I do not know the name of the book. This is one of those things that just kills me, but it was about, it was a leadership book. You know, you and I talked a little bit about leadership on the front end. You know, I love Tom Peters thriving on chaos and it was some motivational leadership book, but it said to ask people that were elderly, uh, but in the United States that we don't value the advice of the elderly. We are youth obsessed culture. So we don't have tribal elders. We don't go to the matriarch or the patriarch of the family. Yep. We just discard them. So it said to ask people that were at or near retirement, what do you know now that you'd wished you'd have known when you were my age that would have caused you to live your life differently? And so I started doing it. And every time, I mean, every time, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I wish I just, it was so funny. I'd write it down in my Franklin Covey day planner. And when they tell me, I'd open the page up and show them I knew what they were going to say. So I started, I made a plan to only work nine months a year and to take three months a year off, not consecutively, but in aggregate. So from the time Mikkel was one year old until she was 26 years old, I took three months a year off. But what I did, those nine months when I worked, I worked twice as hard as everybody else. Hmm. So I actually worked, put 18 months worth of work into nine months, but took three months off. So that's how I stayed, you know, you know, when you're always getting, if you just take one vacation a year or two vacations a year, you're stressed going into it. It takes you a couple of days to unwind. You have two or three good days and then you start getting stressed knowing you got to go back. So if you have a lot of time off, in fact, Dave, we give our employees at Fear Free seven weeks paid vacation starting because we believe in vacation time. Amazing. But, but Fear Free came along and I, I, I broke my own model. I was so passionate about it that I literally did not, I was going to work myself into the grave because I, I'm very focused, very determined to get on something. And in 2018, my family had an intervention and I gave my word. And when I gave my words different just saying, yeah, you're right. I need to slow down. Yeah, I will. And I didn't, I gave my word. It took me a year to unwind all the commitments I'd made in 2019. I was home 52 days. That's it. It's 2020. I was only going to be gone. Maybe maybe 50 days. And then COVID hit and I, I completely, completely stopped. So going back to communication, uh, my mentor, which a lot of your listeners won't know, was Ross Clark. Ross Clark and Steve Ettinger. Now, everybody knows Steve Ettinger because the textbook of veterinary internal medicine. What they don't know was Ettinger was also a practice management expert, which go figure. I did not know that. He was. Yeah. And by the way, Steve Ettinger graduated in the bottom half of his class 
actually the bottom one quarter of his class. I would suggest all the best of us do. Isn't that great? So everybody thinks, oh my God, he must have been the gunner, you know. No, no, <laughs> not him. So Ross Clark was a practice management expert. And when this is honest too, the school library at Washington State University was across from the gross anatomy lab. And people get in there that freshman year and fight over these specimens. And uh, uh, my friend and I figured out pretty soon at Alfred that we just go out and have a good drink at the bar and then come back in afterwards and just wheel the specimens out. And you could look at it. You get it done in 10 minutes. But I spent a lot of time next door in that library reading veterinary economics. And I'll just tell you, it wasn't popular. When I opened it up, it was crisp. But I, I learned I learned that side about really communication and leadership and motivation. And I read tons of books on motivation. And then my, my mom was like a cross between the far side lady and this, this Hallmark character called Maxine, a very animated person. But I, I learned, I took, you know, I studied communication. I got, uh, I got some coaching from people that were professionals to how to move an audience. And then you figure out that in doing a lot of interviews too, you got to kind of be notable, what they call notable and quotable. You got to give them that pithy quote that then ends up in print. So you kind of train your mind to come up with those, those turns of phrases. And, and now it's just like, it's one of the, it's a, it's a gift I have now that's been developed that I could like putting the treat into treatment, you know, we have for fear free or taking the pet out of petrified. It just, and I tell young veterinary students, a lot of them are graduating now to develop their own way of communicating. So they're like little, little bits. I called it rehearse spontaneity. Do you like that one? There's another one. <laughs> Re rehearse spontaneity where that stuff just, you just dial it up. It's like this computer hard drive that just spits this out at this time or this out at this time. But it's shorthand that they then remember and can take home and tell somebody else. That sort of ability to communicate just is, it feels like that is the bridge for a lot of this generation to engage with and plug into. And just, you know, those, yes. those, those things that you're working on, you know, that the sort of applications to vets to school, it's kind of like, you know, building this sort of, yes, we've got to stop losing these guys as well. Not necessarily always from the profession, but this sort of bouncing ball of, you know, they're taking a large paycheck to go someplace shiny getting ground down and then just not getting that sort of mentoring and support and then popping out the other side. Dave, I'm glad you mentioned that. They That's what I tell these students. You have to find somebody that, that mentors you on the, you know, there's the art and science of practice, but also these people that have it all. There's, you know, I know, I know a veterinarian named Julie Reck. She's in her mid thirties in Fort Mill, South Carolina seven doctor practice owns it free and clear has a beautiful new riding arena has a beautiful new home has such nice vehicles she has to hide some of them can't drive them to work husband's a fireman and her team is so happy and motivated they all practice at the top of their license you know and she's she's financially successful and emotionally wealthy you what you want to learn from her she loves she has her hobbies of her horses she has a four-year-old child the need to see those people that have it all, that are financially successful and emotionally wealthy and have balance in their life. There needs to be, you're talking about role models and positive role models. 
Who, I'm actually curious, you know, uh, Dean Bustard was clearly a massive influence for you reading through your, you know, your sort of history. What did he do for you I mean, beyond pointing you in the, in the direction of companion animals? Because it sounds like there's more to that. And who else were your, I call them my veterinary heroes. Who were your veterinary heroes? and What did they do for you? Well, Leo was, this is really crazy. He was a Jewish prisoner of war at Sobibor. I'd just been reading a Rick Atkinson's Pulitzer Prize winning trilogy on World War II. If I end up throwing in a bunch of uh, of, uh, of war uh, analogies here, but there was a Belgian Malinois that were supposed to terrify him, and instead uh, he had this one that befriended him. So in this crazy circumstance, the human animal bond had life breathed into it. That somebody that was literally fighting for for life and death, and wow. so he was the first person. People have called him America's James Harriet. You know, James Harriet certainly had that, and Leo had that. And then he was also the first person really to look at the human-animal health connection. That's how the Delta Society got formed. He knew, along with some uh, another associate, Dr. McCulloch, who had a physician brother who was there, part of the Delta Society. So he was, and he was a master communicator too. So he knew how to I think those two, really those two North stars, the human animal bond and the healing power pets were probably the two North stars that I, that I left with. I had a, a veterinarian. I went into partnership right out of school named Bill Strobel and down in potato country in Southern Idaho. And he was, uh, he was an amazing veterinarian as far as communication. And this is the truth, Dave. My wife hates it when I say this. My daughter hates it when I say this. But I could pass a lie detector test uh, and, and this. I am, a. if you take everything in aggregate, I'm a below average veterinarian. So if you were looking to, do you want to take your pet to America's veterinarian because he's sick or injured? Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really good in the exam room. I love pets. I love people. It's, I don't have to, I don't have to fake it. I love them and I'm great at communication. I'm sincere with my empathy. I know how to move it along in the course that I want to see for the pet. Cause I think I'm a spokesperson for the pet's best interest right now. You can accuse me of being late for an appointment, missing a diagnosis or charging too much, but by God, you're not going to accuse me of not looking after this pet's best interest. So I'm going to speak for this pet. But if, you know, in the back, when you've got a difficult case and you've got to get on VIN and you got to get your textbook out and you think about calling somebody at the university and figuring it out, I'm below average, three or four. In surgery, I'm horrible. I give myself a two. You know, spay neuter is okay, you know, laceration, but I just was never gentle enough with tissue, tissue planes and even extractions or anything. So it, it's funny Dr. Ozzelin started calling me America's veterinarian and that caught on, but you find other, other gifts you have. Uh, and there's always somebody in the practice that I was telling some vet students the other day and they all laughed. I have never looked in an ophthalmoscope and diagnosed something in the eye <laughs> ever. I look in the ophthalmoscope and it all looks screwed up to me. I could no more tell pathology from something that was a hundred percent normal. You know, if it's got dystochiasis or it's got an ulcer, it plugged tear duct, maybe. And then I've continued to get mentors. Like, it's funny, people like um, like yourself or Andy Rourke, or we were talking about Evan Ant and some other people. What's funny is 
where it's mentor mentee, I love it when it gets flipped. And then I learned something from Dave, you know? So I, I, I sincerely mean that when you said that before about me being a mentor to you, I also feel like you've been a mentor to me. And so I always want to live a life of self-improvement. Stephen Covey, that book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is the, still the number one book I've ever read that changed my life. It still guides guides me today. And he talks about sharpening the saw. And I'm always trying to figure out some way to do things better. Like even today, I watched how you switched the thing to Squadcast and different things you do. I made little notes of it. There's things that you've said today that I've already made notes of that I've learned that I'll take with me forward. That is very kind of you to say. I'm scribbling notes like crazy, and some of them are questions, and some of them are like, Jesus, that's solid gold. Like, I've got to tell my team to say shit like that. <laughs> so of all of the work that you've done, there's a couple of questions I want to ask around that. One, I'm actually really curious, what are you the most proud of, and why are you the most proud of that? And, and I'll come on to a follow-up question beyond that. Physically, my polar comb over, my, um, I didn't go coast to coast as I lost my hair. I go from the South Pole to the North Pole. Now, I'll tell you what, by the way, for a lot of people, this is probably going to be the, <laughs> this is going to be the, the, the meatiest part of the whole interview. How did Dr. Becker get a Captain Kangaroo haircut? <laughs> right? I mean, come on. It looks funny. And why did he get this Captain Kangaroo haircut? Okay, I'm in high school. After a football game, my parents were gone to Mexico marlin fishing. And so the house was empty. So a bunch of us, hey, let's go over to Becker's house, right? And I was in this old pickup, and an old pickup. And he had the, uh, I don't know if you've ever driven one, Dave, but they used to have the brighter dim thing was on the floor. It was a little button on the floor you'd hit with your left foot. And so he hits it to see if his lights are on bright or dim. Ahead of us, somebody thought we were trying to stop him, so he stopped in the middle of the road. The handle was broken off of the window, and so he had a pair of pliers to open or close the window. So he was using pliers, and we were watching him, and all of a sudden we ran right in maybe 60 miles an hour right in the back of a car parked on the highway. And I went out the window, no safety glass, and came back inside the cabin and just severely cut myself. Man, my eye was partially prolapsed, and I, I talk about bleeding like a stuck hog. So I got a keloid scar, a raised scar, about a half an inch wide and about a quarter of an inch tall, all across my forehead, along with some other scars. So it is not like, you know, it's like the, it's like Austin Powers. Remember in that movie? It was like, scar. Yeah, so that's how I started wearing my hair down to cover a scar. And it just uh, somehow stuck. And now, by the way, through COVID, I don't have it anymore. I jettisoned <laughs> Captain Kangaroo's haircut and, uh, you know, come back into the a little more modern look here. Where, I've lost track of what was I at? For that was nowhere time. near the answer no, it like, wasn't. to the question, but that's no, great. Okay, so it was... I'm not even sure the question matters anymore. Like that is it. Like so, it was what what if your whole body work? What are you most proud of? And, oh, that's right. Why? I got off on my physicality. Remember, number one, <laughs> sexiest. Yeah. No, the thing I'm the most proud of by far in my whole life would be my marriage to my wife Teresa. We've been married 42 years. 
uh, I thank God I was able to go from lust to love and meet somebody. And, and even through COVID even grew more in love with her because we had time to go through her diaries from age 12 to 25. We were married and she was 23. I was 24. And uh, so I got to know her from age 12. You know, it's just, uh, it's just amazing. Uh, just my greatest blessing. Professionally, for sure, it'd be fear free. Yep. Without a doubt. And I wasn't looking for it. Uh, I wasn't looking for a legacy. I wasn't looking for it. It just found me one of those things. I was in the back of a lecture room. I was going to sneak out early and uh, and got moved. What is the secret of your enduring love? What is that? And this has suddenly turned into an agony, agony ant session, but like, <laughs> screw it, let's go with it. <laughs> Relationships matter, right? Like, so like, what's the secret of that? that wonderful relationship you've had. And then I've got a follow-up question about fear free as well. If I had to say it would be putting each other first and laughter. I mean, we constantly tease and joke and pull uh, practical jokes, but we, uh, we laugh all the time, constantly. Like the other day, my, our granddaughter was here. This was the best one. She said, she's going to start calling me Pama now instead of Papa. Uh, I said, why is that? And she goes, because you got the biggest tits in the family. <laughs> and so I was half papa, half mama. So I'm pama now. That's <laughs> the kind of stuff that's just golden in a family, right? <laughs> and before that, she used to call me retitzel. <laughs> She'd say, retitzel, retitzel, throw down your tits. And so that's <laughs> that's that's the kind of stuff. That <laughs> Wait, was that your granddaughter? Or? <laughs> that's my granddaughter. She's 11. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love it. Uh, we go to bed at night. We hold hands going to bed at night when we sit up here and watch TV. She has rheumatoid arthritis really bad. So I rub her feet every every night and then we hold hands. It's uh, I, I don't know exactly how it happened, but we put work into it too. You know, we definitely put each other first. That's beautiful. So in all the things that you've chosen to do, and one of the things that seems to slow people down, is paralysis of you know what to do or what to commit to how have you chosen what to do you've, you've mentioned some of it's just been you know it's just been serendipity but there's still options there's still a decision to be made how do you make a decision what do you and what to say yes to and almost as importantly like how do you know when to say no to something you know, it's funny when I look at myself, my management style over the years has resembled a squirrel crossing the road. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like ready, fire, aim. I, I am, I am like, hey, this is a great idea. Dave Nichols said it, let's try it. And ah, hell, that didn't work. But I've told my son who's 31, I've never beat myself up for making mistakes. I'm not sure where that came from, but I always tell him risk, be willing to risk. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And don't say, well, I'm really stupid because this didn't work. Or so like, well, that didn't work, but this one worked. So I'll, I'll trial things and always take in what I've learned from things, different businesses and, and see if would this fit inside of veterinary medicine or what I do. Barbara Walters is a famed personality in the U.S. and has this thing. She used to do this special every December of the 10 most interesting people of this year. And one of the questions she asked all 25 years she did that program was she'd say like uh, Prince Harry is or 
Madonna is. She never said in a sentence or anything. She just gave that open-ended question. And when it got done, this was her last year, my wife and I decided, hell, we'll do it together. We'll ask each other the same question. So we looked at our what characteristics would define us. And mine was, so when I said Teresa, Teresa is, and hers was faith. And for me, it was determination. So it's funny. I knew Teresa's and she knew mine. We both put down what we thought we had for ourselves and we, we guessed each other completely perfectly. So when I get behind something, just like the human animal bonder, fear free, what I bring to that is determination, energy, a networking and ability to popularize something. And hell, Dave, I, I'm not Temple Grandin. I'm not gifted in the emotional well-being of animals. I'm like any of anybody else in veterinary medicine or a trainer or groomer. I've loved animals. I felt like I was compassionate, but I was stretching cats out into two postal codes before I had that talk. And I've been on more than one rugby scrum, uh, dozens of them holding down you know, a thousand pounds of humanity on a 10 pound cat or a 20 pound dog to trim their nails. But I, I find something like that, that I feel like, okay, I can do this. If everybody heard what I heard from Karen overall at this lecture, nobody would practice the same way. And she, she said fear was the worst thing a social species could experience and cause permanent damage to the brain. Mm -hmm. And I figured fear free, that's aspirational, but you know, it's kind of a catchy name. So that's how it started. I do get, I, my family still, I help people all the time, probably too much, but I get so much enjoyment out of giving, uh, giving of money, giving of time, giving of energy and expertise that there's a number one New York Times bestselling book called Give and Take by a Wharton professor. And it's kind of like the seven habits of highly effective people too. Is, and, and I know, Dave, you've been the same way. I, I know for a fact you're that same way of helping people over and over and over again. So now with Fear Free, I have to say I'm on five national boards and five local boards. So I do a lot, but because of Fear Free and because of being 67, and not traveling as more, I have to say no more, but that's being brevity challenged and saying no are not two uh, skill sets of mine. I will say. I would like you to just for anybody and, and fear free is a very U S uh, certainly North American driven thing, extending out over the world a little more now for anyone who is curious Elevator pitch on Fear Free. Why must they consider it? What are the benefits? What is the the value add of, of bringing this approach into veterinary practice? Let's look at people that enter veterinary medicine. Almost always, they love pets and want to help pets. They always feel like, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to help pets. You dream of a place where you love pets or animals and they love you back. What a shock it is to get into a place where you love pets and they hate you back. <laughs> where they think right. you're going to kill them when they are in, in their aggressive, it's fear-based aggression. I mean, they think they're going to die. One, one of the things that, that uh, I learned that very first day with Karen overall, the board of veterinary behaviors, you know, had this transform me in this one lecture behavior produces a physiologic response. So behavior is medicine. 
fear is caused by something painful or something disturbing. You trim the nails too short, that's painful. Now seeing the nail trimmers for the pet is disturbing. You have a botched blood draw. You know, they go to three different legs to get a blood draw. Or they give an injection of serenia or a long-acting antibiotic or a vaccine and it's painful. Now seeing the syringe is disturbing. And, and then this is where she got me. She drew a parallel to the human healthcare system of the 50s and 60s, where the dependent beings in human healthcare were manhandled, manipulated, threatened, and abused. And I come from that area where three people held me down to lancet and abscess on the end of my finger, where my sister Cheryl got her ponytail pulled at the dentist's office to keep her mouth open like a human Pez dispenser. But she said, every animal is like a one-year-old child. They are taken against their will for, she called it, hell care. Number two, they have no idea why the procedure benefits them. Number three, they can't anticipate or expect the relief of fear, anxiety, and stress or pain, even if it's moments away. And number four, they have no control. They can't flee the threat. So I got my last COVID shot on Saturday. I go by free will. I know why it benefits me. I know it's going to take a half hour because that's what the first one took. And if something were to happen, I could leave. In fact, a woman went running out there screaming because she saw the needle go into her husband's arm. A dog kept getting a vaccine, taken against their will, don't know why it helps them, doesn't know it's going to be 15 minutes and can't flee the threat. So I thought, it's like, you know, going back to that thing about being a pediatrician for life, right? So felt like we have a, a moral obligation to look after both the physical and emotional well-being of pets. And, and then it went from just a companion animal practice. Equine module comes out uh, next month. We're in 56 countries. It's fully in Spanish now. And these are the things that are going to shock you, Dave. 22 of the 30 veterinary schools in the United States now require fear-free certification of all students before graduation. And by 2022, all 256 veterinary technician programs accredited by the AVMA will require fear-free certification of all veterinary technician students before graduation. So you're going to have probably 90% of all veterinary students and 100% of all veterinary uh, technician students learning our terminology, the methodology, and they'll see it in practice and they'll, they'll want to go to places that practice it. It's a remarkable accomplishment to, to use generating a, a, you know, the, to use the the war terminology from your books but you know it's a it's a the foot soldiers that are driving change through the industry yeah. but when you put it like that and i'd never considered it in those terms it it really is you know it's profoundly powerful so thank you very much for sharing that now i'm keeping one eye on the clock here because i very selfishly want to talk to you for hours but i, I realize that I, I don't have hours so maybe if i can move over to some of the slightly shorter form yeah. and possibly goofier questions then the first thing and, and some of them you actually answered along the way so i i often ask like what do you do better than anybody else and i think you've sort of covered that with determination and and i would absolutely add on your wordsmithery and you know an energy into there but i'm also curious what's your kryptonite if those are your superpowers what's your kryptonite I would say boredom and I would say depression too. My family has a lot of depression uh, issues. So on my dad's side of the family, his dad, brother, and sister killed themselves and my dad killed himself. 
even though he said he never would because of the pain he had. On my wife's side, her dad's brother and sister killed themselves. There's six suicides. Because we joke about everything, Dave, I say the only reason I don't kill myself is because everybody's, they've already done everything. I can't think of an original way to do it. So we, we've got a hanging, we've got a shooting, we got a poisoning, we got slit wrists, we got gunshots. And so somebody did have a good idea the other day about if I ever were to kill myself, that I should be mauled by dogs. <laughs> so the founder of Fear Free was mauled by dogs and they suggested I go to a second world country and get at the intersection of two packs of dogs and cover myself with easy cheese, cheddar, and bacon. And the only reason they know it was me is they found the Fear Free button and there was a Fear Free patch sticking out of a dog's asshole. There was a red and blue tie, striped tie. <laughs> and just some blonde, blonde hair. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit of hair in the scat. Now they... <laughs> I have to be on I have to be on an antidepressant. I didn't get it till I was in my forties. Thank yep. God I'm not manic depressive. Yep. Thank God I'm not bipolar. Yep. But if I was not on an antidepressant, it would be and sometimes I've gone through this uh three times in my life where the doctor encourages you to get off of it. And I got off of it and then I got it again. And and you know, I'm at the point now if I were to go off of it, I had an eighty five percent chance of getting it again. So I'm not going off of it. Mm -hmm. But you know, Sophia Yen, who was such a treasure in veterinary medicine, she did a lot of things that were like Fear Free yeah. uh, about animal handling. And I talked to her probably the six months before she died 20 times. And I asked her if she was on an antidepressant. And she said she was, but she wasn't. And, uh, you know, it's really, I can't understand it to this day. You know, if you're short of thyroid, you take thyroid. If you're an epileptic, you take an anticonvulsant, you know, uh, you're have an infection, you take an antibiotic. Why won't people take these chemical crutches? But anyway, that's what it is. Untreated depression would probably be the biggest one because I've been in that hole before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Marty. Yeah. Appreciate it. Now, something perhaps lighter. What was the best piece of advice you have ever given or received? Your choice. I think it would be I talked to a lot of young female veterinarians and in some of them, I think the world's unfair to men and women. You know, if you take what Trump represents, I'm the opposite. And I don't even mind saying it in a place that's here. I'm for equal opportunity for diversity and human rights. If I had to pick one thing that I'd fight for, it's equal opportunity. I've been in 89 countries. I have not seen a level playing field anywhere that I've been in the globe. There's places in Scandinavia and stuff that are, you know, towards the top, but I think the world is stacked against females. And a lot of times, you know, men can look like me and still don't get scrutinized for their physicality. And it, the world treats men and women differently as they get older. So I'll tell a lot of the younger female veterinarians, make sure that you develop attributes that are going to be attractive to people your entire life. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so it's not, you know, when they're when they're a young female veterinarian and a lot of times their their physicality is stunning. I mean, people are attracted to them and they have this power in a room. But there'll come a time when it, they don't have that anymore. And I want them to have these communication skills and empathy and visible enthusiasm, you know, things that'll people will always be attracted to them. 
I'm in no means judging anybody about that way aging, but that's just the way I want them to be prepared for when life switches on them. And I think for me is that probably the the best advice I ever uh, ever got was from Ross Clark, who just just told me about the you know really he was the guy that said there's only one greatest pet in the world and every family has it that it really stuck with me that you can't judge people their relationship with their bond their ability to pay uh to don't you can't x-ray their wallet you don't know what they're going to say just to think of every single one of them as the world's greatest pet and treat them like a vip and on the flip side of that what was the worst piece of advice you've ever given and or received oh gosh let's think here I think in a, in a way, I kind of got a love-hate relationship with it, but the necessity to be on social media, that uh, I just drug me into it. I did not want to do it and did not want to do it and did not want to do it. And so finally, you know, they thought professionally you had to do it. But And then on like LinkedIn, you know, everybody wants to go on LinkedIn. I never was on LinkedIn because it already helped so many people. I'm afraid it would bury me. I have a really hard time telling people no. Mm. really hard time telling people no that's just what comes to mind books you know you mentioned several books as we've gone through the interview is there a favorite or are there a few favorites that you would recommend anybody who were in, let's get a framework because or, or some sort of context but somebody who either have you have found helpful in the dealing with life or perhaps with the progress as a leader for sure, you know, probably first through third places are the seven habits of highly effective people. And also the, the, his book, The Eighth Habit. I actually had him as a client, Dave. It ended up as a quirk. I had a practice in Salt Lake City. So I wasn't directly as veterinarian, but he went to our practice and got to meet him. Also the books by Richard Carlson, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Hmm. It's all small stuff. Uh, he became a friend. Really, I'm a voracious reader of you know, the blue ocean strategy and thriving on chaos. I mean, I've read, I love that book. I've got something from every one of these books. So it, it's really hard to, I know the seven habits, highly effective people. And I'm one of the people that can actually tell you the seven habits and actually live the seven habits. But that's what comes to mind. What's the coolest thing you've bought in the last six months? We've all spent a lot of time on Amazon, right? Making Jeff rich. Oh, this is easy. Hey, by the way, Dave. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever said this publicly. At one time, I was at the the chief veterinary correspondent for Amazon. Cool. So here's how did that? What now? What the heck? What did you say? Story. So they were they were the world's largest bookstore. Right. That's how they started out. And I wrote Chicken Soup for the Pet Lover's Soul, or which probably should say edit it because you're editing all these stories and adding a few of your own. And if you sign a book, books are a weird thing. People can order books, and if they don't sell, they can send them back yep. and get credit. If you sign it, they can't send it back. So, <laughs> plus, I can say they have autographed books. That is why I've got a signed copy of Marty Becker's book that, on my that's shelf. Exactly, that's exactly right. That's I exactly thought it was special. Right. <laughs> no, 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 I just signed it. <laughs> so, I was in there signing books in downtown Seattle, and this there was a building, like a six story building that was a block square. And he walked by, and the guy introduced me to him. Little tiny, tiny little guy, but that's. Oh, it got a long time ago. But Amazon was going to be an information company then. 
they were going to have articles. So like, uh, so like vet street was or pet MD or, but not, not just for pets, but for everything. Right. Yep. So that was, I was their chief, uh, chief, uh, veterinary correspondent. I'll tell you what I have. That's really cool. I collect, I love to, I drive a 24 year old pickup truck. So I don't, that, that kind of stuff doesn't do anything for me, fancy vehicles or anything. I live in a beautiful home on a horse ranch in Northern Idaho, but I collect things related to the wild West. So, you know, so many people, I think in England, even think about cowboys and Indians in America. And so John Wayne movies. Oh yeah. Lewis and Clark were, you know, the big explorers. So like I have things that Lewis and Clark traded to the Nez Perce Indians on their route. And probably the neatest thing, two neatest things I've bought in the last year. One is my dad had a special shotgun called a Model 12 Winchester. And with my son, we love guns. We don't hunt, but, you know, we've got, I don't even know, maybe 40, 50 guns. And I have every model of the Model 12. They're, they're uh, you know, from like 1920 up, all shootable. And the other thing is axes. So at one time there was 500 axe manufacturers in the U.S. And there's certain kind of collectible axes. And I live in a log home. You know, you've seen the background here. Right. So it kind of fits in. But some of these axes are like like the Holy Grail. It's really hard to find. You can pay two, $3,000 for one axe head. But that, that nobody else has told you that. I guarantee you, nobody else has said Model 12s, something from Lewis and Clark and an axe head, right? Remind me never, ever to pick a fight with you anywhere in Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> hey, our neighbor, th- this is Idaho for your international audience. In Northern Idaho, somebody moved from the Seattle area over here because he wanted to get away from those liberals over there in Seattle. You ready for this? For every gun he has, he bought 40,000 rounds of ammunition. <laughs> 40,000 rounds. And so I'll tell you one thing. If Lightning ever strikes that building he has in and over there, wow. <laughs> USA, USA, <laughs> USA. <laughs> If those Canadians come over only six miles in the Canadian border. I was border, going to say, those, aren't the Canadians quite nice? Like, oh, if those Canucks come over, man, they don't have a chance, man. They'll eat some lead. <laughs> Marty, what would you like to be remembered for? I feel like that's a premature question because you are, are not showing any signs of slowing down. But I want to definitely be, uh, first and foremost, somebody that, really loved and respected his wife and took care of her that left her pampered and appreciated, cared for and catered to. I wanted to leave that example for my kids. It's just genuine. My mom and dad weren't very happy. Dad with his manic depression and his alcoholism. So I was lucky enough, instead of following the same thing, I decided to do something different. Somebody that celebrated, protected and nurtured the human animal bond that looked after the emotional well-being of animals globally. And I think that helped help mentor a coming generation of veterinary medical communicators, especially female, that um, we need people to replace what you and I do, Dave, and have that special interest. Uh, you know, there needs to be another few Dave Nichols, right? Around the world, really. 
Yeah, you know, that's what I, I'd say. It's the one of, you mentioned social media before, and it really is a double-edged sword. But but one of the fun things is seeing this next crop and just starting to, you know, the digital natives are now coming into into play and what they're going to do with the technologies and with with their veterinary medicine, their version. It's like, do you know the show Doctor Who? No. Okay, it's a it's a UK show that it's very niche. This is a doctor who regenerates. Doesn't he doesn't ever die and he regenerates. It's a cute plot device that allows him to regenerate and then the show will be reborn to another generation. So everybody had their doctor that they grew up with through, you know, multiple generations in the UK and it's still going today. And what's nice is that there's a generation coming through that this is their veterinary medicine. You know, I had mine, you had yours. This is theirs, and it's, it is going to be fascinating to see where they go and, and what they take it because it's so uplifting that animals are such an important part of people's lives. So forever, the, whatever the problems we have now, we're going to figure that out, and it will be really cool to see these guys coming through. But my last, I'd say it might be my second last question. We'll stick with social for a second. And uh, if you could send a tweet, let's go with a tweet. And it could pop up on devices all over the world. So everybody would see it. What would it say? It would say when the affairs of the world seem hopeless, when all you see is political, religious, territorial division, that there's one thing that we can all celebrate together and connect with, and that are animals. I guess animals in general and pets. You know, my older brother and I, if he was to talk about, he had kids that went to Columbia. I mean, there's a genius thread that in our family. My mom graduated from college at just 16. My sister, class of 25 kids total, number one in her class at Yale. My brother's kids, you know, went to a full scholarship at Columbia. You know, really smart. But if he brags about his kids, I feel like it somehow diminishes my kids. It's just the way it is. I don't I'd really celebrate as much as I could. But he's got a new little Norwich Terrier. And he can go on and on and on and on about that damn Norwich. And I can celebrate it with him. And so I live in Trump country up here. You know, I'm somebody that's um, liberal. Definitely, I'm not far left, but I'm definitely, somebody once described me as a Republican in my head and a Democrat in my heart. But (laughs) it's hard now when I'm even turned off by the American flag because of the way it's been co-opted by the right. Mm. That's probably not the place to make a political thing, but all of us can talk about our pets. It brings us together and we, we need things like that, that, you know, it doesn't happen with religion. It certainly doesn't happen with politics. So what could we find to people that are polar opposites that would bring us together? And that's what it would be. Mm. Always. And so a last question, and I'm going to flip one that you said earlier back on you and and ask you what do you know now that if you'd have known back then you would do things differently that was good that was really good that you did that dang that that was a that's good job buddy (laughs) that's a really good job i wouldn't have missed my daughter's first year of life i literally did not see her her first year of life i would have worked harder to create career paths for the people that worked in the practice. I feel like we were as generous as we could be with uh, wages and benefits, 
but we really didn't think about career paths for these people. And the last thing, and maybe the most important, that emotional well-being of people is just as important as physical well-being. They always say, you know, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Well, if you don't have your mental health, you don't have anything. And I know that's a, you know, it keeps coming up, a wave will come, and then it'll be a rash of suicides. And then it's, we all go to not one more vet, we do things. But it's a very stressful profession, very stressful. We run a small business. There's life and death decisions every day. There's this, I mean, literally, you got a life in your hands and, and something passes and you got to go in and see a kitten. Tell me any other profession that sees the number of deaths that we do. Yep. And also, we're so emotionally connected with clients. You know, my sister, by times she doesn't see them die. You know, they end up in ER or a nursing home somewhere and die of kidney failure. She doesn't see them. Yeah. So you've got to have coping and resiliency skills and things to make you, you know, stay centered. I know like on boats, they paint a plumb line, that line that you don't want to load a ship any farther than that line. You can't load yourself farther than that. Uh, that. Dave, I got to ask you that part. Since I've known you, you always have this joie de vivre, this joy. I mean, you're you're always smiling. Like, is that you? Is that, and is that an important part of you? It's immensely important part. I mean, I mean, something really tragic happened, not to me, not to my family, but to people close to me recently. And it's something I'm processing and dealing with. And, you know, I, I have a hard time processing and dealing with it. And it made me reflect on, I couldn't get my head into space. It was almost a, not an empathy block far from it, but just I couldn't get my head into the space of where you'd have to be to be in so much pain to make a decision that, that was such a grave decision. And it's hard because when I wake up every morning, I think, oh yeah, I get another go at this, bring <laughs> it. And if I was a dog breed, I would be a Labrador. You know, not just because I like sticking my nose in people's crotches. <laughs> I do like food a lot as well, but I I will run and, you know, it's definitely not like everything. You know, I've had my fair share of, of difficult stuff to deal with. But but the thing I always circle back to and is truer than anything else is that makes me happier than anything else is just helping other human beings and watching them grow and, and become something you know, something that not better than they were, but something where they just light bulbs go off and you see people acquiring skills and confidence and it's just wonderful. And that's where I find myself in my career being able to help people with that. So, but fun is baked in, it has to be baked into everything because the work we do is so hard. You just, yeah, I can't imagine a world where I took it so seriously. I didn't smile at it. That's, that would be a difficult world for me. And even through lockdown, you know, it sucked, but I got to spend a heck of a lot more time with my daughter than I would have gotten. And I'll always look back on it and go, you know, that will still be a happy time for all the, the disruption and the mental anguish that everybody has suffered. I'll look back on it and have that and see a glass half full. So it's, yeah, it's, it's 100% genuine. I get, I get grumpy as well. And I have high expectations and, you know, and I'm sure I can be a, an absolute douchebag at times also, but... But those moments are, are fleeting and and mostly I just fucking love life. So, yep. By the way, you know how sometimes I say about that, that, that exercise, you know, when you don't think of a pink elephant, you know, there's something that you think of it. Douchebag. 
my mom had a douchebag and it's it hung in the bathroom with this hose and is are we going to lose that are we going to lose that in future generations are they going to be able to say what a douchebag i don't know <laughs> i hope so i hope so <laughs> and if they do maybe they won't know what they're talking about and we can just giggle smirk slightly what a bookend to an interview right <laughs> we end up with a douchebag Wait, I'm. A, I don't know. Like, this might be the end of the podcast. I'm not sure I can go anywhere might, from here. I mean, for so many to, reasons. I dare anybody to put it at Google Images and uh, have at it. <laughs> They're always kind of a red rubber. I remember it. Right. It is. And we're not talking a whoopee cushion here, folks. So no, no, we're not. Kind of the same color. <laughs> <laughs> See, well, there's a good example, Dave. We have fun, right? I mean, that's... You can't take it too seriously. You know, that's you said that earlier. It was, you know, the kids at university, and I don't want to say that to be patronizing, which is how it sort of sounded. It's not intended. But, you know, it's like I was always 51% was 1% too much work. You know, that was the pass mark. Right, it was right. And it was right. 1% too little living. And, of course, that led to a couple of squeaky bum moments. But I got through it and heck, I, you know, I, I loved my, the, you know, the clinical part of my career, which was nearly 20 years. I just loved and I still love having the practice and, but I just love this other thing more now and, and helping the next generation. That's why leaders never, as well. Like, you never know where your profession takes you. There's so many opportunities now. Do you know, you know, there's 30 people, 30 veterinarians with uh, American Humane, which I'm uh, on the board of that just handle uh, pets in movies and tv i mean you're on the set of no animals were harmed i mean how incredible is that it, it really is a passport well dave you have made me really think today thank you for letting me be part of this i've wanted to do it for a long time i really appreciate you having me on dave it's a pleasure marty um thank you so much not, not just for your time on this but just for for being an inspiration and a guide to me several yeah till as long as i can remember in my career but i'm sure i speak on behalf of many and just thanking you for the work the tireless work you've done to promote and advocate for for animals but also for keeping our profession relevant in the eyes of the you know our public without whom we are pretty much nothing so thank you you know i could talk for hours but this was a absolute highlight thank you sir thank you buddy blessings to you Boom, shake the room. There you go. That's it for another episode of Blunt Dissection. Wasn't that awesome? I listened back to that episode two or three times and just took so much out of it. I hope you got just massive value out of that. And please show Dr. Marty Becker some love on the socials. Now, if you did enjoy it, the other thing you could do is share it with somebody else you think would enjoy hearing the message of the show. And then the final thing, if you're feeling really generous, please go to iTunes. We don't charge anything for doing this show, but if you leave a five-star rating, it gives us a lot of value in return. So that is my ask of you. Until the next episode, my friends, be safe, be well, and be happy.